Open your Bibles, if you would, to Joshua chapter 24. Just out of curiosity, how many of you have ever flown on an airplane? Raise your hand. Okay, all right. Honestly, that's just about all of us. Stories told about a gentleman, or excuse me, a, an air, an airline. <clears throat> the passengers were seated. <clears throat> the pilot and co-pilot were nowhere to be found. You know, it's about time to take off. The passengers are getting a little restless, anxious. You know, where are, are we even going to lift off on time? And from the back of the airplane, they see these two dressed as pilot and co-pilot. And the one, they're both wearing these big dark sunglasses and one has a cane and he's tapping it from side to side, sometimes hitting passengers as he's walking down the aisle. The other one has a, a, a dog leading him and he too has these glasses on. And apparently this is the pilot and the co-pilot and they go into the pilot's cabin and they're seated and they say, this is the pilot, Captain Smith here to tell you that we are now ready for takeoff. And people begin to grab one another's hands and some of them are bowing their heads and praying what's going on. These are blind pilots and co-pilots, what? And after a while, the engines are going and they're beginning to move down the runway and they're getting closer and closer to the end and they're wondering, is, is this plane gonna lift off? And they're getting closer and closer and they're wondering and they're beginning to murmur to one another and some of them are praying very loudly. And about 20 feet before the end of the runway, they all begin to scream, ah! And suddenly the airplane lifts off the ground. And in the quiet of the cockpit, the co-pilot turns to the pilot and says, you know, one day the passengers aren't gonna scream and we're all gonna die. Yeah, that's about as bad as the two vultures that were carrying on two dead raccoons apiece onto the airplane and, and the attendant stops them and, and says, I'm sorry, but you're only allowed one carrion per passenger. You don't like my airline jokes. They're probably a little bit too plain, I guess. I want to ask you, how many of you remember 9-11? It was 15 years ago, 9-11, planes crashing into the, the Twin Towers. I, I remember that very day. I was at a dealership and was just totally blown away, about to get my work okayed and jump into my work, and two airplanes crashing into these towers, devastated. Uh, after that incident, you might remember... Uh, what going on an airplane was like. Our America, our world changed. I can remember that uh, as, as we were boarding an, an airplane, for the first time after 9-11, my family, I think we were heading up to, to Delaware to spend a week with uh, our relatives. And as the, the, the line for, to, to go through security check-in or check-out, which have you, it, to go into the air, airline, it was incredibly long, and we knew this, we anticipated it, so we got there like two and a half hours early, and, or three hours early, whatever it was. Mammoth line. And by the, when we get up there, I see the garbage can is full, and I'm wondering what on earth the garbage can is full, and I see people tossing their waters, their Mountain Dews, and I just thought, Oh my goodness, as I'm holding my Mountain Dew. I have had only a few sips out of this thing. Please don't tell me, God, that I've got to surrender my Mountain Dew. It was 20 ounces of nothing but goodness. And I was going to have to throw it in my trash, this trash can. I began to feel sorry for myself. And, you know, they, they, there were long lines, there were... TSA jackets everywhere, there were searches, there were metal object uh, detectors that were going off, there were trash cans filled with, this became what was known as contraband, and I was going to have to throw my Mountain Dew away. My wife looked over at me right as I was about to make this decision, and she saw the weight of the decision pressing upon me. Do I throw my mountain? Do I throw my mountain dew away, or hold on to it and say goodbye to my family? 
So 30 minutes later, I caught up to them. <laughs> yeah. We had a great trip, by the way. Great trip. You know, there are major decisions that we all must take, that we all must make, as we enter into our promised land. You know, things that we're challenged to leave behind, things that we're called to embrace in our lives and our divine destiny that's in Christ. So as we look at Joshua chapter 24, verses 1 through 28, and there's a number of verses we're going to read this morning. This is the last installment, if you will, of the sermon series, Taking the Land. And I want to focus on just kind of a final word, because this is Joshua's final word, and he gives it to the people of Israel. I'm not sure if it's just the leaders or if it's all of Israel. Regardless, it's a challenge, and it's a call to them to make a decision. And hopefully it doesn't take them more than 30 minutes, but they can, it's an, it should be an easy decision. And it appears that it is. But what a temptation for us to always want to go back and fish out of that trash can, that Mountain Dew, to, to go back to that trash can and fish out of it. You're going to find out the relevancy of that, but we need to make a decision. And for, and, and for Joshua, he says, choose your, yourselves this day whom you will serve. Joshua chapter 24, verse 1. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Not sure if this is all of Israel in addition to the elders, as I've mentioned, or just the elders. Regardless, he says to all the people, this is what the Lord, Yahweh, he's giving his covenantal name right at the get-go, Yahweh, the God of Israel says, long ago your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor lived beyond, the, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. Terah was an idolater. But I took your father Abraham from, be, from the land beyond the river and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac. And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau. I assigned the hill, excuse me, but, to, but Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Now remember what happened in Egypt. This almost sounds like uh, Jacob got the raw end of the deal. Esau gets land and Jacob has to move to Egypt. But we see there, and this is more commentary, I'm not reading, of course, but we see there after 400 years that God has so thoroughly, massively built up the nation of Israel that they're no longer 70 people. They are now in the neighborhood of millions, somewhere between um, one and a half, two and a half million. We're not exactly sure. The fighting men number 600,000. If you were to find some ratio of fighting men in America to the general population, it's generally, you know, four times larger. The, the truth, though, is that even though this may, be, may seem a bad thing because now they're going to be enslaved in Egypt, it turns out to be a good thing. So let me continue. Then I, said, I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. When I, brought your forth, when I brought your fathers out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they, the Israelites, cried to Yahweh for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them, may I add, because the Egyptians pursued them through the Red Sea. <clears throat> you saw your, with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the desert for a long time, 40 years actually. I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them from before you and you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you. But I would not listen to Balaam. So he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did also the Amorites, 
Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites. But I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you. Also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build. And you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Now, fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord, Yahweh. And if serving Yahweh seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers, excuse me, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living now. But as for me and my household, we will serve Yahweh. Then the people answered, far be it from us to forsake Yahweh to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our fathers up out of Egypt from the land of slavery and performed these great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve Yahweh our God and obey him. On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people, and there at Shechem, he drew up for them decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. See, he said to all the people, this stone is a witness against us. It has heard all the words Yahweh has said to us, it will be a witness against you if you are untrue to your God. So let's check their baggage, if you will, at the safety check. Here is what you discover. You discover three things, three contraband that they are needing to dispose of. Number one, the gods that their forefathers worshipped. Number two, the gods that they worshiped in Egypt, and number three, the gods of the Amorites. If you were to go back to the book of Genesis, actually chapter 11, it tells us this, that Terah was from Ur of the Chaldeans. And if you were to look on a map, that's fairly close, fairly close to the mouth of the Tigris and the Euphrates as it empties into what's now called today the Persian Gulf. In Ur of the Chaldeans, part of the Mesopotamian area, the Fertile Crescent, if you guys remember your geography and if you're looking at a map there, <clears throat> Ur was heavily involved in moon worship. Now over here, way across on the other side of the, the desert, you find Egypt and they're worshiping the sun god, Ra the sun god. But over here in Ur, they're worshiping the moon god. While in Ur, and please understand that Abraham and Nahor, his brother, Haran had passed away, the, the firstborn had passed away. Abraham was the secondborn. Nahor was the thirdborn. And, <coughs> excuse me, understand Abraham and Nahor grew up with all the, with this multiplicity of gods and which their father worshipped. And on all I'm saying is that Ur of the Chaldeans 
was the hub of moon worship. And they worshiped other gods. But Abraham was steeped in this. And it was while Abraham was in Ur of the Chaldeans, when Stephen is giving his testimony in Acts chapter 7, he brings this to light. And we are, we're told here that Terah, on the other side of the Euphrates, Ur of the Chaldeans, he worshipped other gods. It's there that God spoke to Abraham and said, come, I want to show you a place. I want to give you a place. So come with me. And so as he leaves, apparently Terah goes with him and Nahor, Sarai, whom he married, Nahor and his, his wife and such, they all go, but they pit stop at Haran. Now, if you were to be looking at your map, Haran is northeast. It's much further uh, upstream, and they pit stop there. And apparently there, too, there is a heavy emphasis on moon worship, and apparently Terra feels comfortable there. Now, we don't know the, the whys and hows and such, but Abraham apparently feels obligated to stay with his father, Terah. And when his father, Terah, passes away, Abraham is now 75. And it may have been just a very short time in Haran. But while they're there, again, apparently God renews his call and says, come with me. And only Abraham, Lot, and Abraham's family comes with him. Terah's passed away. Nahor and his folk, they stay up in that area. And... God now becomes very personal to Abraham. But this is the Abraham that for years and years was steeped in a culture of idolatry. And God speaks to him. Now, we don't know in what context. We don't know what Abraham has heard about Yahweh. We do know that the, the, the name of Yahweh the one true God was proliferated throughout the people. It's just that polytheistic worship had become the norm of the day, not monotheism. Abraham leaves his family. He leaves his gods behind, and he clings to the one true God, the God that created all things, the God that spoke to Noah and, and rescued Noah and the seven others aboard the ark. And it is to this God that Abraham clings to. When Abraham's grandson, Jacob, is wanting a wife, he goes into the north country in Paddan Aram, which is that area of Haran where Nahor stopped. Nahor understood who Yahweh was. If you were read the accounts in Genesis, that name Yahweh is on his lips. Bethuel is his son, and, and he recognizes this name Yahweh and acknowledges Yahweh's sovereignty. But something you find very interesting after 14 years of serving Laban, Bethuel's son, um, Jacob, who is now married with several children, he leaves. And it says this. It says that Rachel, his wife, it was that time of the month for her, and she was sitting on the, the donkey, and underneath in the satchel bags were what was called the teraphim. The teraphim were family gods. Even at this moment, Jacob is about to marry a woman who gives honor and respect to gods other than Yahweh. And this, this idea of idolatry, to what degree she forsook those idols, we are not completely sure. Again, she acknowledges or at least gives lip service to Yahweh. She marries Jacob. The descendants eventually move to Egypt. And these idols, this potential for idolatry, is always there knocking at the door of the nation of Israel. I want you to view 
this first category, the gods of your forefathers, I want you to view these as what the Bible refers to, though it doesn't use the term, but we use the term today, generational curses. Those are things from your fathers and your parents, and you may have grown up in a family. Maybe your dad or your mother was an alcoholic, and it, the atmosphere in your home was incredibly volatile. You had no idea when that parent would be drunk, or when that parent would lose their temperature, when that parent would would physically abuse you and you learn to run and hide in closets and and or under the bed when your father would come home drunk and this this atmosphere of fear uh, pervaded your home or maybe like in my case my dad was not an alcoholic but my dad had a terrible temper There was one time in which he caught us boys, probably 11 o'clock at night. We were supposed to be in bed, and he came downstairs because he heard us four boys in the this our bedroom. We are two bunk beds in this bedroom, and we were we were talking and we were laughing, and he came downstairs and he was angry, and he began to ask us questions and interrogating us, you know, with this spotlight. No, okay, it wasn't that bad, but I mean, we definitely felt interrogated, and we just, in, we would, we would freeze. And we, what are you doing? And our response was, "I don't know." That was our favorite phrase. "I don't know," "I don't know." What are you doing? "I don't know." Did you say anything? "I don't know." And because our dad terrified us, and we were afraid that if we said anything other than "I don't know," we would get spanked. But even "I don't know" was the wrong answer. And but. I remember this, that he chose not to spank us, and instead he turned around and he put his fist through the wall. And fortunately for him, he missed the stud, but his fist went right through the wall. Uh, My dad was an angry man. It hurt my mom. Regular arguments, very poor relationship with my older brother. God began to get a hold of my dad, even though he'd grown up in a Christian home. At the time, he was a choir director. We grew up in a Christian, in a church. My dad struggled severely with anger. And it produced things in me. But I grew up and I said, you know what? I am never going to be an angry man. And if anything, I swung to the other side of the pendulum. But here is one thing that I did realize. That even though I was so opposed to the anger and the violence that I saw in my dad, there were things that I didn't see, attitudes that I didn't recognize that became a part of my life. And one of those was criticism. I want you to, I want to read a passage from Deuteronomy just to make sure that we're on the same page here. I'm I'm not just pulling, you know, this concept of generational curses out of the hat or making something up. Scripture actually speaks of them, but it speaks of them in this way. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 9, it says, he says, you shall not be, he's talking about not making God, not making uh, idols. And he says, you shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. It goes on talking about his love to a thousand generations. But I think it, it requires a bit of pause and reflection on our part because Ezekiel 18 makes it clear that God never said that the children would be punished for the sins of the fathers. That he, he puts it this way. He says, when the father eats grapes, the children's teeth are set on edge. He says, no, 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 this, the, the soul that sins, it shall die. And so when we, when we understand this, and it's throughout the, the Old Testament, what on earth is, is God getting at here when he says that he will punish the children? And here is what you find, and it's throughout the Old Testament. I would venture to say even into the New, but most specifically in the Old, that the children of these parents with strongholds and issues that, that do destruction in their families, the children learn these sins. It's not just that God punishes the children and the children are innocent. No, I was culpable. Even though I was not, I did not grow up being a violent man, I grew up with the very same attitude, which was much harder to detect 
but an attitude that my dad had. And it was one of criticism. He and I had similar personalities. I saw how he dealt with his attention to detail, but he criticized, he criticized his children. And I thought I was aware of this, but it really hurt my marriage. And God had to, about six years into my marriage, began to really open my eyes to what I was doing in my home. And, and for me, it was like a light bulb moment. It, it, the light had turned on, and I was aware of how I was hurting my wife. And here I thought I was trying to help her. Came to a point many, many years later after God had really uh, done a deep work in me and understand God all, when he, God begins a work, he carries it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So God has not completed that task yet in your pastor's life. But he, I believe he's accomplished a lot. Several years ago when my dad was still able to travel before he was uh, put in a, a nursing home for his Alzheimer's, I remember that he and my mom had visited and I saw before me a conversation and it was in my family room that they had. Now, please understand, as I mentioned this, I thoroughly love my mom and my dad. But this was a stronghold in my dad's life. And now I saw it had become a stronghold in my mom's life. And they began a conversation that was, that was probably lasting 10 to 15 minutes. They focused totally on the negative of things, people, and most specifically, one another. They, would, they had a decent relationship. God had to do a lot of healing, especially in my mom. But I, I, I felt terrible. Right in front of me was just one negative thing after the other, one criticism after the other. And I realized I love my mom and my dad, but I need to address this. They're in my home. My home doesn't live like this anymore. And so, and I don't want my children growing up to be critical because this type of stuff kind of went under the radar when I was a child. And that became me later on that God had to deal with. And so after their conversation, my dad wanted to talk with me. And so we went upstairs in the homeschool room and it was just he and I, and we had a real heart to heart. And I said, because my dad was really wanting to grow closer to the Lord. And he said, Mike, what would you recommend? Give me some advice here. So here's my dad humbling himself, speaking to, asking questions of his son. I was a pastor then. And, and I said, Dad, I'm going to be very frank with you. There's a serious stronghold in your, in your life. And now I see it in, my mo in, in mom's. And I'm going to venture to say that if God were to heal you of this and just Throw the contraband away, if you will. God is going to allow you to experience the depth of God's love. Because criticism will, is one of those things that keeps the, 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 the healing power of God at bay, the, the intimacy with God at bay. It will do this to you. And as I walked my dad through this, he was totally humble, and he was totally receptive of this, and it amazed me. And I really pray, God, give me grace to do this. But church, I'm sharing this with you because the, the gods that Terah worshipped was something that Abraham was steeped in. And the nation of Israel throughout their lives uh, to, to the time of Christ, that concept, this idolatry was always knocking on the door of, that nation, of the nation of Israel. This generational curse was passed down and it was never thoroughly and completely done away with. And I'm going to encourage you today. I'm going to call you church. Choose this day whom you will serve. Toss the garbage into the trash can. What sins from your childhood are still pursuing you? 
Maybe it's not something that you saw. Maybe it's an attitude that kind of went under the radar and it's affected you. It's impacted you. It's brought you to this place, maybe even in your marriage as it was with me, in which you need a God encounter to be able to set you free, to be able to open your eyes. You know, my mom, my dad, that stuff that I saw, maybe it's not exactly like that, but that stuff, it's still in me. And we need to cry out to God, rescue me. And I cannot tell you over and over, I cried out to God in the early part of our marriage to set me free from this criticism and this attitude, this condescending attitude that I saw in my dad. And, you know, may God give us all grace. For me, it has taken years for God to root out of my life. It was that deeply rooted in me. But I, six years into my marriage, when God turned that light bulb on for me, it was like, why have I not really seen this before? And I I told my wife, I, I said, you know, whenever you hear me be condescending or critical to you, can you please say, Mike, you need to know right now You're speaking to me like a child. And she did that numerous times, and I would, wow, really? Now, can I be honest with you? Many times I'd get defensive. Just insecurities coming up. The guy was still rooting out. But I grew up in that atmosphere. Insecurities, man, that was another issue that God has had to root out of my life. But remember this, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. And God is still carrying on that work in my life. And I would venture to say he's still carrying it on in your life. God is still getting rid of these gods of terror, if you will, out of your life, these generational curses and being set free from them. So they're no longer knocking at the door. Whereas God said about that sin of Cain, it's crouching at the door, seeking to master you, to control you. Church, I'm going to tell you, don't open that door anymore. Choose this day who you will serve. Toss the garbage in the trash can. The second thing that we see here are the gods that they served in Egypt. Doesn't that surprise you? What? They they worshipped gods in Egypt other than the Lord? Well, apparently so. And they brought these gods with them. Now, if we were to remember some of the sermons that I preached, uh, I can't remember how long ago it was, but there were several, about six or more, from the book of Numbers. You remember, if we were to go all the way back to Numbers 11, I believe it's verse 4, it talks about the rabble. Do you remember that phrase, the rabble? You look at it, it says, the rabble? Who? R-A-B-B-L-E. Who, who are they? What are they? Are they people from other nations? Or who is? They, the rabble... If you go all the way back to Exodus 12, when when Israel, the morning after Passover, remember the night the death angel came and put all the firstborn to to death, that very next morning, Pharaoh said, I'm not asking you to leave. I am telling you to leave. You must go. And there was this sense of urgency because that's what was portrayed in the Passover, this sense of urgency. And, and as the Israelites were finally just pulling their stuff together, getting ready to leave Egypt, it says that the neighbors around them just gave them gold, silver, jewelry, go, go, you know, bless you. And hoping that maybe if I bless the, the Israelites, the God of Israel will honor me and spare my life because they saw the power of God. They saw the judgment of Yahweh upon Egypt and they wanted to avoid that. And so they blessed Israel. And it even says they blessed them so much, God puts it this way, Israel uh, ransacked Egypt. But this rabble, are those people groups, some of them Egyptians, some of them other the nationalities, they go with Israel. That's who the rabble is. And they bring their gods with them. And it's the rabble that begins to undermine Israel's leadership, Moses, Aaron. It's them who be, it's they who begin to complain about, are we gonna have manna? Again, really, honestly, guys, come on, let's get with the program. I mean, I want a menu. And and don't we treat God this way? We're tired of the same old, same old, even though it's a blessing. Come on, God, 
You know, I want more money. I, I want more of this. I want more of this. I mean, give me a menu, Lord. Give me some selection here. And the truth is, God has blessed us. But this rabble started undermining leadership. They were worshiping, many of them, worshiping other gods. It was like an infection in Israel. And they were the ones who regularly started the complaining. And if you were to switch over to Numbers 14, Joshua and Caleb and the 10 of the spies have gone into Israel. Canaan checking it out, come back. Joshua and Caleb come back with a good report. The 10 spies come back with a what? A bad report. And it says in the very next chapter, it says that now the Israelites, not the rabble, the Israelites began to complain. The sins of the, 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 the gods of the Egyptians are those things that are a part of our past. They're, they're part of our flesh. They're those things that when we come to Christ, he says, put to death the old man, the old lifestyle. That's who you were. You would become a new creation in Christ. You used to live this way. You were exposed to all of these sins and temptations and wrong attitudes and rebellion. Let's be honest, that's what the Bible calls it. Sin is rebellion. And, and this is who we were. And as we're growing up outside of Christ, before we came to this revelation of who he is and, and, and what he what he called us to, we lived in this sin. We lived in this sinful lifestyle. This, that's, that's who we were. That's how we lived. And now when we come to Christ, God has challenged us. Paul, we read, and he says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And he lists, you know, anger and, and pride and lusts and lying. And he says, that's part of your old man. That's part of, you need to put that off like a garment. Put it off. And you need to put on the new man, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. So I want to ask you, what type of sins have been pulling you aside, pulling you down. For Joshua, as we went through the book of Joshua, there was this moment of decision, this moment of, really, it was more than a decision, but a declaration, and he called it the reproach of Egypt back in chapter 5. Do you remember that? And he, he says that you, in Egypt, you were slaves, but now you are sons of God. And we need to realize that in the, the old man, the old lifestyle, when the flesh controlled you, we were slaves to that sin. But we have been called out and rescued. And now we have been rescued from the dominion, the kingdom of darkness. We've been brought into the kingdom of light. We've been rescued from that lifestyle to live a new life in Christ. We are now new creations in Christ. And the reproach of our slavery, our Egypt, is rolled away. And that's why they named that place that this happens. That's why they name it Gilgal. The reproach of Egypt, of my slavery, is rolled away. And now I am embarking on this new journey, this new adventure in Christ. But I've got to be careful because those idols of Egypt and that idea of slavery to the rebellion against God and all of that, that's, that's knocking at my door. That's the flesh, and it must remain crucified. I can never give it life. Because if I do, just like Cain, if you open that door, that sin seeks to master and control you. And so we... We see this picture even in Joshua. You're not slaves anymore. Church, you are not slaves. You are called sons and daughters of God, children of the Most High. You have an inheritance now. See, slaves don't have an inheritance, but sons do, daughters do. This is your inheritance. The promised land, whatever that is for you, it's salvation. It's the inheritance that we have by being in Christ. It's daily blessings and God's daily provision for you. These are part of his promised land that you have been given. And even to, to the point of, of new ministries and new opportunities that he gives you, new ways of building the kingdom because we're to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. God will give these as part of his blessing, as part of your inheritance. This is ours, church. 
The stone, the, the reproach has been rolled away. We are royalty now. We must do away with that sin. You remember in the last installment of the Lord of the Rings, the return of the ring, or the return of the king. And in this, throughout the story, there is one objective, and that is to take the one ring that rules all others and throw it into the, the volcano, the Mount, what, what is it called? Mount, Mount Doom? Is that what it's called, Mount Doom? Okay, in Mordor. And you may remember the struggle that's being had and, and Gollum and, and so on. And his goal was he had to throw that ring away. But that ring was Gollum's precious, right? And was soon becoming a weight around Frodo's neck. Even as sin becomes a weight around us, it, we must get rid of it. We, the only way to destroy sin is not on your own effort. It's not to take that ring and stick it in your pocket. And that's what he tried to do, but it would almost as if it would call to them. Even as our sin calls to us, no, that bondage, that control has got to be broken and it must be destroyed. And so at the very end of the movie, spoiler alert if you've never seen it, it does get tossed or thrown or okay, carried into the, into the fires and destroyed. Even as sin in our lives must be destroyed. So church, today I am calling you, I am asking you, choose this day whom you will serve. Are you gonna serve the flesh? Or are you gonna serve our risen savior who is calling us into this promised land and has awesome things in store for us? Toss the garbage in the can. And now we come to the third, and that is the gods of the Amorites. The gods of the Amorites, now the term Amorites, even though Amorites were only one of the seven people groups that are mentioned throughout Joshua and even in the, the Pentateuch, the, the first five books of the Bible, Amorites has come to be used as kind of a general term, even as the term Canaanites is used. So when it says the gods of the Amorites, he's not trying to be very specific about that people group Amorites, but all of those gods, all of those seven nations that inhabited Canaan that they were now needing to remove. Remember in the previous chapter, the survivors of the nations. And I said many times, the survivors of the nations, many times they're like the garbage dump. And many times we, we sort through the garbage to find out what we want to keep. And my challenge to you is church, it's all garbage. What are you sorting through the garbage for? We've tossed it away. It needs to remain there, but how easy it is to want to come back and, oh, guys, this, this is Mountain Dew. Mm. Oh, give me a minute. Give me a minute. Mm. Ah. Oh, yeah. Mm. Hang on a second now. Mm. You know, actually, give me about 30 minutes. I need to finish this. And we go back to the dump, and we sort through the garbage. Church, let me remind you, it's all garbage. It's all garbage. What are we sorting through it for? The sins of the Amorites. It, began, it became a thorn as it says, in their eyes. And it was their downfall. You can read about it throughout the book of Judges. Over and over, the sins of the Amorites was visited. The children of Israel would worship Baal. The children of Israel would worship these other gods. They would go astray. They would do what they wanted to do. The Bible calls this rebellion. And in worshiping those gods, God had to say, okay, I will enslave you again then. So even in the land of Canaan, this promised land that they had inherited, they became enslaved again over and over. And when the oppression got so extreme, they would finally cry out, God, please rescue us from the hand of our oppressors. And God would always 
excuse me, that was good Mountain Dew. God would always give them a, a deliverer. And that deliverer would become their judge, never a king, because God was to be their king. But a judge, a leader, one who would lead them to the Lord. Not imposing taxes, not imp well, I'm going to preach a sermon on this. Uh, anyways, the, the bottom line is that we have our own idols. As we look around in America today, we have the idols of the Amorites all around us, all around us. If you were to look, by the way, at Deuteronomy 32, 16 to 17. You can do that. Just keep your fingers here in Joshua because we are going to come back to it. But in Deuteronomy 32, 16 and 17, you may not be aware of this. But Moses is speaking at the very end of his life to the Israelites, and he says, referring to the nation, they, they made him jealous with their foreign gods and angered him with their detestable idols. They sacrificed to demons which are not God. Gods they had not known. Gods that recently appeared. Gods your forefathers did not fear. Notice, maybe in your Bible as well, that word gods is a little g. Can I just tell you that there are gods in our day today? And no, they are not made of wood and stone. But these gods are demons. And they are very real. The chief God, Satan himself, is called the God of this age, the ruler of the air, the prince of the dominion of darkness. And he rules, and he enslaves, and he wants that ring to be your precious. He wants your sin to be coddled and cradled in your hands and clung to and warn at all times so it can control you. So when I talk about the idols or the gods of the Amorites, these gods, even though they are wood and stone, it is the demons behind these idols that are really being worshipped. If you were to look around America today, we are a pluralistic society. We have Christian, we, uh, religiously we are pluralistic, uh, for example. There are Christians, there are Jews, there are um, Muslims, there are Buddhists, there are uh, Hindus, there are Taoists, there are uh, Mormons. And, and can I say this, and I'm going to be very frank with you, that even though in America that we are called to live peaceably with those that we disagree with, let's understand that it is from our belief structure that flows our worldview. What you believe about God specifically will determine your politics, your business ethics, it will determine the way you educate. It will determine the way you live, obviously, your ethics. But your Christianity, your belief system, that, be, that, that, that fashions your worldview, how you will view the world. Are people basically good or are they basically evil? Do we trust radical Muslims or do we not? My point is this that if people are not serving the one true God, I'm going to be very clear here. They are not just worshiping other gods, but their religion is occultic. It is occultic. It is not just a slight veering off. It is an embracing of Satan's plans, of Satan's ways. I am regularly amazed when I hear of well-known pastors, I could drop some names and you might be surprised, who regularly pray with and plan with Muslims, Jews, Orthodox Jews who do not know Jesus as their Messiah, uh, Buddhists, other clergy, clerics of other religions, and they pray with them and they fellowship with them. 
And they say, well, you know what? I, I do serve a different God, but we're trying to create unity here. And my question is, what fellowship does light have with darkness? Now, I am not suggesting that we form a crusade against other religions. They are welcome here in America. But America was founded on biblical principles, and my heart's desire is not to surrender that to Sharia law. It's not to allow other religions to control how uh, control America's destiny. And that is something that our founding fathers would be willing to fight for. And they did in the, um, forgive me, um, in the, the, the Barbary states, in which the Muslim, the, that was a name given to the Muslims, their religion dictated their international policy. And even Thomas Jefferson said, there is a separation, a wall of separation between church and state. And what he meant was this, that even though we are Christians, we are not going, our goal is not to kill you. Our goal is not to uh, push you away, but we are willing, even though we're a Christian nation, to treat you friendly. And he wanted to enter into a treaty with that mutual understanding. And so, Today, this concept of a wall of separation of church and state basically means leave your brains at home and go to Washington, D.C., which I suppose many have done. But the truth is, we, we cannot separate our religion and our ethics from our politics. It determines our worldview. It determines how, I, how a politician votes. And so my, my point is, is very simply this. We, we are surrounded by a multiplicity of religions. And they are living in darkness. They are heavily involved in the occult. Even the Mormons, and if you know some Mormon friends, they may not be aware of all that takes place within Mormonism. But when you get up to high levels, when you go into the temple in Utah, if you are married and you have to wear that special undergarment and you were to see in the temple the occultic symbols they even had very occultic symbols outside of their temple and when that was highlighted to them that they were clearly occultic wow did they get rid of them in a hurry but joseph smith was heavily involved in freemasonry joseph smith the founder of mormonism was heavily involved in freemasonry uh, the the pearl of great price um, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the name of their other book and the Bible are basically their scriptures. And so they will communicate with you as a Christian on the Bible, but they believe many other things. They believe that you had a pre-existing life and that Elohim was a man or a woman, a creature just like you at one time who was fallen and sinful and was redeemed and perfected himself so that in his own righteousness, he earned the position of being a God, capital G, and having his own universe populating his own planet with his own spirit children. And those spirits were now sent to earth, and that apparently would be you and me. In this time of testing, who are the true children of God? Church, this is totally occultic. This is mythology at its best, or at its worst. And when they dialogue with you, they will not bring this stuff up unless you do. And they will try and talk strictly from the Bible. But there is so much more. Honestly, I'm sure there are many Mormons who don't even know about this. But if you were to pick up a book like The God Makers, and many books that are out there, if you go on YouTube, there are some good presentations. I watched one several months ago. It was about an hour and a half and very, very enlightening. But church, all around us, all around us in America, are world religions represented in America that will constantly be calling to us and to our children, come follow me. They will knock on your doors. Many of us, we will welcome them in. And in a casual conversation, 
their seeds of error will be planted. I'm not saying we shouldn't invite them into our homes, but if we do, our goal is to show them Jesus and only Jesus. On another front, we find that in America, the gods of the Amorites that are occultic are not just the other religions, but they are, they, they are for example, the wealth in America. And I'm going to just be honest and confess to you, I am sure the deception of wealth has deceived even me, and I just don't know it. And that concerns me. That concerns me when I start making choices and I place too much emphasis on money. Now, I am called as the head of my home to provide and, and seek to provide well for my family. And I take that seriously. And, and, and when things have happened where I, I, I am not, we find ourselves as a family. We're fasting and praying. This is serious because God is our provider and we need him to provide right now. And God has never failed us. But I, I would venture to say that even the desire for wealth has deceived and gripped my heart. And my prayer is, God, wherever that is in my life, please show me. Because it's everywhere in this wealthy nation. And I'm just going to suggest to you, church, all of this that I'm talking about is Satan's master plan. Whether it's religions or temptations of all kinds, knocking on our door, seeking to lead us astray, Satan's one goal is to immobilize you. It is to neutralize you. It is to, if this is a word, disempower you. It is for, for fear, not faith, to fill your heart. It is worry. It is selfishness to try and control you. And I just want to tell you, it's garbage. Choose this day whom you will serve. How did, uh, how did Samuel put it? Rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft, or witchcraft is like the sin of rebellion. All sin is rebellion. All sin is a serving of Satan. So whether it's very clear, like other world religions, or simply the deception of wealth, it's all demonic. It's all darkness, and it all deceives. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Allow God to roll back the reproach of Egypt and slavery from your life. Take that garbage to the dump. Throw it away. And I don't care how attractive it looks to you. Leave it there and don't go back to it. If we were to look on, we would see that the, the Israelites chose you. We will serve the Lord. Amen to you, Joshua. We're going to follow the Lord. We're going to serve him. And he gives a little reality check that's a little bit harsh, perhaps. And he says this. He says, you are not able to serve the Lord. Now, I have to confess, I don't understand exactly what he's saying there, except to simply say this, that in and of me and the strength that I have, I can't follow after the Lord. And I desperately need his strength and I need to cling to him. And here's what we do find. The Israelites did that. Woohoo! They followed the Lord. They refused to entertain the idols of their forefathers. They refused to entertain the idols of Egypt. They refused to entertain the idols and the idolatry of the Amorites, the Canaanites. Throughout the lifetime of Joshua and that generation that experienced the deliverance and the power of God, when that generation died out, so did their passion for the Lord. And I'm just going to, just like last week, I'm going to call you church, experience God and constantly remind yourself of his goodness. Remind yourself. He, they set up a, a large stone and they even say, the stone has heard all of this. It will now stand as a witness. I think I made a mistake and said that in chapter 22, when they built that altar, that was the seventh a memorial. That was actually the sixth, my bad. This is the seventh in the book of Joshua. Again, a witness, and it stands as a witness. Okay, you have said you're going to follow the Lord, then do it. 
The second thing is we look at verse 31. Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. And I'm going to encourage you, seek to daily experience and walk in the goodness and the favor of God. Position yourself for him to pour out blessing by following after him. And then lastly, it's, it's interesting. It says in verse 32, and Joseph's bones, which the Israelites had brought up out of Egypt, were buried in Shechem. Kind of like an out there, where is this from? But do you not realize that those bones were like almost sacred? They were honorable. And they took them from Egypt. And they had only this one goal in mind. We will take that land because it's in that land that we are going to place his bones. There was a sense of confidence and resolve that no matter how hard this journey is, we obviously have to take the land and fight enemies, even fight giants, but we will do it. We will be victorious, and there will come a day in which we will honor Joseph's request. Don't leave my bones here in Egypt. Take me with you when you finally inherit that awesome land. And 400-some years later, the plan, the the desire is fulfilled, and they finally take Joseph bones rather and they lay them there in Shechem kind of like a, a testimony God you were faithful as we stepped out in faith and we took our forefathers bones and we brought them to this place this sense of faith this sense of resolve this sense of God you promised and we will follow you We will refuse to go back to Egypt. We will carry this on to the end. We will not give up. We will overcome. Revelation 2, 7, to him who overcomes. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Revelation 3, 21, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. And so I'm going to conclude this study through Joshua with this church. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Take the garbage that surrounds you and throw it in the the trash can. Toss it into the dump. Roll back the reproach of slavery. You're sons and daughters of Christ. You You have an awesome inheritance as a result. He is calling you to overcome. And my promise, his promise, scripture's promise to you is this, that if you overcome, if you endure to the end and you pursue Christ he will give you the right to eat from the tree of life you will be permitted you will have the right the authority to sit on his throne with him and you will rule and reign with him for all eternity I'm looking forward to my time in heaven I'm going to encourage you if you have an opportunity please listen to last week's teaching on heaven. Let it encourage you. Because as Isaac Asimov, an atheist, said, he said, I'm so glad I'm an atheist. I'm so glad I'm an atheist. Because, how did he put it? He said, the boredoms of heaven will be worse than the tortures of hell. Where did he get that? You know where he got it? Church? From us? He learned it from the church. You go back centuries ago, what an emphasis they placed on heaven and its awesomeness. And yet, what what picture do, do people think of? They think of pearly gates. They think of clouds. They think of playing harps in heaven for all of eternity. And this is heaven? This is something I'm supposed to look forward to. This is why I'm making all of these sacrifices and throwing aside the gods of my forefathers and the gods of Egypt and the gods of the Amorites for this, really? I think Isaac Asimov took the temperature of the church and said it's haunting. Heaven is no longer a thing we look forward to. Why sacrifice it all? And I want to challenge you, church. As you, go, as you listen to that teaching, heaven is going to be absolutely, phenomenally, astoundingly awesome. 
If there's an adjective that means awesome, I would use it before the word awesome. It's awesomely awesome. It is 10 times better than what you can imagine. We are not going to be standing on clouds. We're going to be inheriting this earth. This will be the promised land that we are merely tasting in this life. It will be so much better. Can you stand with me, church? I look forward to that day. I am willing to sacrifice whatever I have to. I want to be an overcomer. I encourage you, join with me. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Seek to overcome. There is blessing upon blessing in store for us if we overcome. Father, I want to thank you that your promises are true. You will fulfill every good intention on your heart. Every promise from your word, you will fulfill. We have no need to go back to the garbage can or the garbage dump. We can find ourselves fully and completely satisfied in you. Father, whatever you need to cleanse out of us and remove, do that right now as we choose this day whom we will serve with resolve. We lay it all aside and we renew this covenant. We say, God, the one true God, Jesus in heaven, by your grace, we will overcome. We will rise up. We will hate what is evil. We will cling to what is good. That is our determination. That is the attitude and the posture of our heart today. And we are all witnesses of this. I am your son. I am your daughter, and I will walk in this incredible inheritance that I have in Christ. I choose this day to follow Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have an awesome day. Enjoy it as I enjoy my Mountain Dew right now. You didn't think I was going to throw it away, did you really?